Hello and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, Cosmo Macero and I are back talking business and news on 321 Go, and our own Hugh Drummond talks to Jeremy Reiner, Chief Meteorologist for 7 News. And in two minutes with Tom, our CEO, Tom O'Neill, is talking about Woodward's new book, Fear, about the Trump administration. First up, 321 Go. Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321 Go on OA on Air, where each week we take a brief but purposeful look at three important topics in the world of public affairs, business, government, culture, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, we talk about the quality of stadium concessions and institutional food service, no small thing when you're trying to please a crowd. And the biggest night of boxing in Boston history will feature Police, firefighter, and ex-military fighters duking it out for championship titles. And finally, is your Apple Watch a life-saving device? It very well could be. We'll explain. Joining me here on 321 Go is Kyan Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA On Air. Kyan, how are you this week? I'm good. How are you? Excellent. All right, let's get to it. All right, first things first, it's football season, and this week, Deborah First, the, one of the food writers for the Boston Globe, uh, weighed in on the quality of the concessions at Gillette Stadium, home of the New England Patriots. Or lack thereof. Or lack thereof. Now, I, before I get into my personal opinion, um, just pretty toughly worded uh, uh, piece about the food at Gillette Stadium, it, I will say... More and more, whether you're a, a, a sports team or a university or even a hospital or whatever it might be, the importance of your institutional food service um, can't be understated. You know, People it, like food. People like good food. Now, it is a captive audience. You're not going to not sell out Gillette Stadium because the food is terrible. But i got to tell you, I, I'm just going to weigh in here and disagree because uh, I think the food at Gillette Stadium is actually really good. Um, she says it doesn't even compare. I have two problems with this. It doesn't compare to Fenway Park. I, I, I don't know that that's the case at all. Number two, she's got a little bit of an elitist view of what they ought to be doing. That she, she, you know, say, say what you want about Papaginos. She's cracking all over the Papaginos pizza and stuff. But she's like, how come we don't have Tasty Burger or Wall Burger or number? Nine, or how about opening a number nine park? That seems excessive. That seems excessive and, and a little bit. Too high end, and you know what? The prices in every stadium are already too high end. But I got to tell you, the first time I ever ate a Davio steak and cheese egg roll, mm-hmm. which which obviously was a was a, was a big mistake to make for my my personal food lifestyle, was was at Gillette Stadium, right? They, 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 that was like years pre-gaming ago. Pre-gaming at the restaurant? No, in the stadium. Now it it may not be part of what they're rotating in and out right now. Yeah. But they have all kinds of interesting items in there. I don't know if I agree. Um, my question to you is, how important is it when you're at an event that the concessions be really really good? I'm. I wouldn't not go to an event because of a lack of good food options. Yeah. However. I think what she's getting to is that it kind of flies in the face of the Patriots brand and sort of this world that they have created. I mean, if you go to Gillette, there's a number of options of, you know, 
decent dining establish, establishments anywhere from, you know, CBS and you've got Bar Louie, but then you've got Davio's and, oh, yeah. um, you know, oh, some oh, other oh, places. Oh, places loaded with, with high-end options. But really just what the craft family and company sort of puts forward as their brand. And we are one of the best, if not the best, sports teams. We are, We pride ourselves on being excellent. So I think it's I was a little sort of surprised. I have, truth be told, I've never been to a Patriots game. Um, I've been to Gillette for events and things and, and, you know, concerts. But I think it's more about kind of keeping up with with the larger brand conversation where this becomes a little bit more surprising. I guarantee it got attention. Um, I wonder if we'll see any changes. Well, I I don't know, but I know that it's important to a a, a franchise to be able to offer, you know – concession options that people are going to be excited about and, and, and it's going to help drive revenue. I just happen to sort of disagree with her conclusion. I will say that, again, the importance of this stuff to institutions has, be, has become uh, more and more obvious. A good example is colleges and universities. They are absolutely competing at, at a high level to, to be known for the quality of their on-campus dining. I mean, yeah. uh, UMass is consistently ranked at the top now UMass Amherst. Our I'll tell alma you, mater. My, exactly. Yeah. I'll tell you, I don't know about you, but when I was there, you know, Turkey Divan or Turkey Divan was like, <laughs> that's as good as it gets and it won't get that good ever again except every Tuesday night. I think more and more people are ascribing themselves to being sort of foodies in some sense of the word and, and more and more places are having to figure out how to cater to that population. Um, do I think that Gillette is not going to be sold out for Patriots game because they they serve Papaginos and not Wahlburgers? Absolutely not. Do I think that it plays a little bit on you know the larger brand? Yeah, a little and bit. Do, what, do you think we need a number nine park to go? Inside I think that's Gillette? a little much. And also number nine park. I don't want to eat that food to go. I want to sit and I want to enjoy that food. I don't want to be bumping into people with nine dollar beers. Exactly. All right, there you go. All right, one of the more exciting and glamorous projects we're involved in right now here at O'Neill & Associates is we're helping to promote Boston's biggest ever night of boxing. That's October 20th at TD Garden. The headline match is Billy Joe Saunders versus Demetrius Andrade, but the program features an exciting component of first responders uh, and not and not, and not just club fighters, right? Uh, I'm talking to Brooke Sion here, who's our crack producer. Framingham firefighter Danny O'Connor, he's 30 and three, will face off against Tommy Coyle, uh, 24 and four, 15 knockouts in a super lightweight championship match. And then Mark Bazooka DeLuca, he's a former U.S. Marine and veteran of the war in Afghanistan, 21 and one, 13 KOs. He's a super welterweight. Uh, Super Welter White from Whitman, Massachusetts. He's fighting uh, in a rematch against Walter Wright, 17-4, 8 KOs. Um, uh, That's a rematch of a somewhat controversial uh, last fight they had. And then finally, Niall Kennedy. He's a police officer from Gorey County, Wexford in Ireland. He'll face off against New Jersey's Brendan Barrett in a six-round showdown of undefeated fighters. So a real first responder, police, fire, rescue, military component, um, and a significant component. All these fighters, or several of these fighters, are out of the uh, Murphy's Boxing Promotions camp 
which is uh, which was established by Ken Casey of the Dropkick Murphys. He's one of the co-promoters of this fight. It's an exciting night, and this is a really interesting component. And by the way, again, probably the biggest night, or definitely the biggest night in boxing, uh, the biggest night of boxing in in, uh, in city of Boston history. Brooke, you were at the press conference rolling out this uh, this exciting fight. What do you think of this? I was, yeah. Actually, it was a great event, and um, really, it was very clear to me that everyone here is incredibly excited to bring boxing back to Boston. Um, actually, Danny O'Connor was the last boxer to box here as Ken Casey, and he both said during the press conference a few years ago, so he's definitely excited to be back. Um, as for the, the speeches, sort of the way the press conference worked is, you know, they introduce and then everybody gets up and gives a little spiel. And actually, I thought the two most compelling talks were from O'Connor and DeLuca. I mean, O'Connor got up there, was incredibly cordial, thanked his firefighting team for letting him take a break, you know, let him let him practice sure. a little bit. Lots of training goes into that. Exactly. It take months at a time to train. Well, and then and then uh, DeLuca got up and was just as, just as sort of, you know, soft-spoken, very obviously a great fighter, but but was just grateful to be there and incredibly happy and excited to be representing Boston at the Garden in October. So it was really a great great experience. Yeah, DeLuca has amassed a tremendous following of fans. He's got people that attend all of his fights um, specifically to go see him. Uh, it, it's really remarkable, and, and Ken Casey's done a tremendous job uh, uh, really building the fight game in Boston through Murphy's boxing. Uh, doesn't hurt that he's met, that he is... Um, um, working together with Matrim Boxing USA. Matrim is probably the single biggest promoter of boxing in the world. They're, they're out of the UK. Uh, it's going to be quite a night. We're excited to be part of it and be part of the promotions for it. Uh, but this is a really interesting component and I think uh, really adds a whole different feature to this uh, to this great night of boxing. It does. You're right. And it's, uh, it's going to be mostly uh, British boxers versus Bostonian boxers. So it's sort of like the Revolutionary War, but for charity. Absolutely. All right, Brooke, thanks a lot. Brooke is the expert at uh, turning our knobs and uh, joining us here on 321Go. All right, Apple has now received two Food and Drug Administration approvals for the Apple Watch as a medical device. That's right. It's uh, it's kind of a do-it-yourself EKG. Uh, <laughs> buyer beware. Uh, and also for the, mo- for the monitoring of an irregular heart, which can be a signal of atrial defibrillation. So um, the Apple Watch, um, with uh, an application as a medical device, they're focused on, on big screens uh, and big medical applications, Cayenne. Tell me what you think about this. And I guess this is horizontal growth into different areas, or is that vertical integration? Oh, I don't know. What do you think? I think they're taking over. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's it's pretty amazing. When I read the whole, you know, like government approval and FDA, it, this is just on a whole other level. For a brand and a a company that from the beginning has really led the way in so many areas, I I guess it's the next step. It's sort of one of those conversations where you sit around and you go, what are we going to do next? And somebody was like, let's make the Apple Watch an echocardiogram. And somebody was like, that's ridiculous. And then someone else said, no, why not? And you want to know what? That is how Apple has been successful from day one. They have said, why not? 
to every sort of it's, it, it's idea that's popped this, up. This thing can det- it can detect falls. It can take a thirty second echocardiogram. It's the first over the counter monitor that can do that. Um, the president of the American Heart Association, no less, uh, is talking about how devices like this that offer real time heart data are changing the way medicine is practiced. You know, Apple, uh, for years, decades, has had a legendary product pipeline. Stuff that we haven't even thought of are in that pipeline waiting for their time to be f- reach full development and be mm-hmm. un- uh, unveiled. Yeah, I, I got to imagine this is one of those items that was in there whose time has come. Um, uh, and that re- I think things developments like this really indicate that Apple as a company... Um, does still have a very robust future if they're innovating in that way and, and, and unveiling products that really take um, uh, consumer products and applications in new directions all the time. I think that we all thought, who needs a computer in our pocket? And here we all are, and now we're all addicted to our phones. And then, you know, when the Apple Watch came out, I remember thinking, like, why do I? I don't have an Apple Watch, full disclosure, but I know people that do find it very handy. And the, I'm like, why do I want my text messages coming in on my watch? I have a friend who, whenever she travels, her boarding pass is on her watch. Like, these are things that never would have occurred to any of us to that we needed, and now we can't live without. And now it also opens a whole new market of people who might be interested in Apple products. You know, senior citizens, forget the lifeline, the little thing that you wear around your neck. Oh, yeah. You can, I fall and I can't get up. Yeah. Goodbye. I'll be sad to see those commercials go if they go out of business. I don't think they're going to sell the Apple Watch at <laughs> 2 in the morning on UHF television if that still exists. No, but it's something that people can now look at buying for their parents or their grandparents. And, I mean, that's a whole new yeah. sort of look, audience. As a company, Apple has always been a tremendous innovator. But you know what? Lots of companies are innovative. They are so in a different way. Apple is also, and, and I think this indicates, still able to really be a marketing force, masters of public relations and mm-hmm. marketing and rolling out products, product launch. Um, Steve Jobs was a master of that, and, and uh, I think that continues with this company right now. Yeah. I wonder what's next. All right, Cayenne. Thank you. All right, then. That's going to do it for this week's edition of 321 Go. Cayenne, a pleasure as always. Always. We'll see you next time. 321 Go is recorded in Studio 10A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room, at our building in the heart of Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. That's all for 321 Go. Up next, an interview with Jeremy Reiner from 7 News. I am uh, Hugh Drummond, and I'm sitting here today with Jeremy Reiner, who's the chief meteorologist of WHDH-TV Channel 7. Correct. Howdy, neighbor. Right around the corner from you guys. <laughs> That's right. And uh, you just told us that uh, well, you're on air every day, but this is your first time being on a podcast. Correct. I, uh, I've i been in the podcast world for a number of years. You know, I have a, a about an hour-long commute into the city, and um, I, I think podcasts are outstanding. You know, all sorts of topics and, and avenues of getting information out. The one I'm into now is... Um, I'm a football junkie, so pro football focus of right, those guys, the analytics. Right. Okay. And um, 
you know, Freakonomics radio. Yeah, and, yeah, excellent. And, uh, you know, 538, so. Yeah, and now OA on air. Yes, right, <laughs> yes. I'm gonna, certainly going to have to listen to this one, critique right. myself. Well, uh, we're very fortunate to have uh, Jeremy here today because uh, weather is a big topic. It and is. Um, we have Hurricane Florence right now in the Atlantic, a uh, life-threatening storm. Um you tweeted earlier today something very interesting, which was, I guess there was a, a NOAA uh, report of like an 80-foot wave or, or surge or something. You said the Green Monster, just for perspective, sure, 37 feet. Yeah, the, the NOAA planes, they are invaluable tool. They, they go out and, you know, they fly th- through these machines, these weather machines, and they sample all sorts of data, atmospheric data and in you know, oceanic data. And, and one of the um, observations this morning was an, an 84-foot wave that, uh, if I recall the tweet, that sometimes the wave kind of got trapped within the storm. So it was kind of, you know, making the, the most of its time in that storm. And so perspective, yeah, the Green Monster, 37 feet high. And, you know, obviously that doesn't include the old net from years ago, but <laughs> the monster itself, right. 37 feet high. Now that won't be an 84 foot wave that comes ashore. That's right. just out over the open Atlantic, but it gives you an idea of, of what we are looking at here with this, with this storm. So obviously a very powerful storm, a very dangerous storm. Mm-hmm. The track is wobbling a little bit as, as it comes closer to the shore. Um, you know, any anything we sh- you're seeing, what do we expect? Well, I think in New England, you know, I think we're okay. We've got this blocking high pressure, which it's not doing a good job today with the showers. Mm-hmm. This is recorded midweek, but mm-hmm. the, the blocking high pressure will become more established as we get to the weekend and you'll see the results sunshine. But that, that same block of high pressure is forcing Florence toward the Carolina coastline. I think the only thing that we might... Um, see the effects from Florence would be a churned up surf rip and tines. rip currents. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, these, as we talked about just moments ago, that, that tweet earlier today, you know, there's a lot of wave energy out in that ocean. And even though the storm is is heading west toward Carolina, you know, those waves propagate out in all directions. You know, the analogy is doing a cannonball into your pool. You know, you do the cannonball and the waves have to go somewhere. So that wave action is working north toward New England. And so this weekend will be great for the beaches, but you'll notice that that churned up surf and the uh, the likelihood of uh, dangerous rip currents here uh, on the south coast. Again, I think the beaches around Boston should be okay, but this would be, you know, down in Buzzards Bay and, you know, on the south side of the Cape and the islands. Right. So um, and very important safety warning for, for people that might be uh, at the shores. Um, Question. We don't usually see, a, we, it's rare to see a hurricane up here. Um, certainly rare, it would be rare to see a category three or above. You know, just for perspective, um, a Hurricane Bob was a one, I think. I, uh, I think a two. two. I think when it came into New England, it was a two. And that's the last landfalling hurricane we've seen in New England back in 1991. And, you know, Bob produced a a six-foot storm surge wow. up through, you know, Narragansett Bay and Buzzards Bay. And the storm surge with Florence coming to the Carolina beaches, you know, could be on the order of 9 to 14 feet. And, and that's so, on top of tides. Correct. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a 6 to 14-foot storm surge. That's when you're on dry ground, you know, there's 14 feet of water where you're standing. And, you know, most, most residents – along those beaches, they're going to take on water and, and likely be destroyed, unfortunately. 
Right. But in New England, it is it is much more rare. And uh, they don't work up here very often. And, um, you know, the blocking high pressure for us, this go around will mm-hmm. not allow it to, to come roaring up the coast. Mm-hmm. If you, you know, if you had a different configuration of the jet stream, like we saw with Bob and Gloria in mm-hmm. the mid-80s, uh, that would propel it up the eastern seaboard. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you take a closer look at, you know, the hurricanes, they typically when they get to New England, they're moving very fast. And... I've often said, and I've heard other meteorologists say this too, that you know, if you if you compare a stalled out nor'easter versus a, a fast moving hurricane, Cat One or Cat Two, the nor'easter is is comparable in damage, if not exceeds the damage. And you know, I point you right to you know the blizzard of '78, right? You know, five high tide cycles, and uh, we all know what those images looked like. Typically, if you're, you deal with a hurricane, it might be one high tide cycle. You could catch it at a low tide cycle too, right? Right. So I'm curious. Um, I I follow the weather closely. I follow you closely on, on social media. And it just seems as though that either we're having more intense weather or either the weather technology's gotten better. But, you know, we have summer thunderstorms that now have tornadoes. Is that new or am I just – are we just tracking more or seeing more? Because I think um, I think it's two things. I think you know the, the weather patterns do ebb and flow, and so you know this summer has been one of our most humid summers in New England on record. They they haven't tracked dew point data like they have temperature data, but if you look at the dew point data back to 1970, and dew point's a measure of humidity and and what we the benchmark we use for dew points, you know, a dew point over 70, it's very uncomfortable, humid, tropical air mass, and we have uh, n- not seen this kind of humidity in New England since we started tracking dew point data. So I get to my point here is that, you know, high dew points, a lot of humidity usually leads to more thunderstorms and it can lead to more tornadoes as well. So this summer has seen a, an, a marked uptick in, in thunderstorm and, and tornadic activity in southern New England. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of, you know, the big picture and in, in, in tropical systems, some of that could be, you know, the news cycle that we're in nowadays where, you know, 24-hour news and there's right. more exposure uh, to to events that might have gone unnoticed in the past. Right. Uh, you know, we have two other tropical entities out there right now, uh, Tropical Storm Isaac and, and Hurricane Helene in the Atlantic. Neither one looks like it's a factor in our world. And, you know, Isaac heads toward the Caribbean this weekend, but weekends, so it's not a repeat of of a Maria or Irma like we saw last year, thankfully. Thankfully. And yeah. Helene spins up into the Northeast Atlantic and, and encounters cold water. Yeah. Last year we had 17 named storms. This year we, including, you know, what we have now, we have nine. Yeah. I would, I think the tropics will shut down quicker this year. I think we'll be much quieter after this week. September though is usually This week month. is typically the, you know, this September week. 10th is typically your, your peak active day in the Atlantic tropical basin. So wow. it's, Fitting that this week happens to be a very busy week in the tropics, but yeah. watch what happens next week. I think, you know, certainly by the end of next week and beyond, I, I doubt we would have another tropical system. Yeah. Uh, just this year anyway. So uh, kind of a uh, question about uh, being a meteorologist. Uh, it, obviously down south, you have hurricane season, things like that, but isn't New England a fun place to work? Yes, it's very challenging. I mean, I grew up in uh, Western Mass. I grew up in the Berkshires. And so I went to college in Vermont and, you know, having an opportunity to work in other parts of the, the country in Minnesota and North Carolina years ago. It's, you know, here in New England, though, it's 
it's an honor and a privilege to work in your backyard. And, uh, you know, all seasons challenge uh, the meteorologist here in New England. Obviously, the aforementioned nor'easters, right. you know, in the, in the springtime, you know, will spring ever show up? You know, <laughs> and when does it get going? The summertime thunderstorms and, and occasionally, you know, tropical activity right. as far north as, as New England. So I know our time is limited with you, but uh, we, we certainly can't let you go without uh, looking ahead. What's, what, what are we expecting for winter? Uh, dark and <laughs> cold. <laughs> no, I would say uh, it's there. Some of the things we look for, uh, for in, the, in the global patterns, we like to see what the tropical Pacific is doing. Is it an El Nino or a La Nina? Uh, El Nino is mm. warm ocean water around the equatorial Pacific. And La Nina is a, a, a cool ocean uh, signature in the equatorial Pacific. And those that's the starting ground because that part of the world is really what feeds the uh, atmosphere for most of the global weather patterns. And then, off, then from that jumping point, we can start to look at other factors around the world, you know, blocking high pressure around the North Pole and Greenland and Alaska. And... I'm trying to stall here and then come up with an answer for you. But mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, you know, I, there, there are some signs, uh, right? It's really early in the game right now, but th- there are some signs. It, it could be somewhat of a, an active, busy winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are other signals that say it's a mild winter and, and more of a rain event than snow. So, well, maybe we can have you back. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so it'll be fun. You're going to be working all weekend, I guess? Uh, I'm not sure about the weekend, uh, but certainly the rest of the week. Yeah. It, it depends if in what you know Florence does. If I, we don't think it's going to take a right hand jog to the northeast, um, you know we we probably would be okay on a normal staff mm-hmm. if it's just a churned up serve. Mm-hmm. But uh, always on call, always a phone call away. Right. Yeah. Well, um, we thank you very much for taking time out of your busy day to. Come over to our studio. Thanks for the invitation. Look forward to having you back. Mm -hmm. And obviously our thoughts and prayers are with all those in in harm's way. Yeah, it is certainly to our south, our friends to the south in the Carolinas. It's a a tough haul and um, something we'll have to watch. And, you know, one of our models actually, uh, the European model, it it moves the storm down along the South Carolina coastline. And it might try to clip portions of uh, North Florida, Jacksonville, Patriots on Sunday. So that that is something that we'll have to watch. Uh, Maybe there's a little bit of the outer fringe of the storm grazes North Florida, you know, over the weekend. It's interesting, and and we can wrap it up here. But the you mentioned European model. There's an American model. There's some European model. There's other models. And um, the European model seems to be more accurate for long range forecasting, or is. is it a mix? Now it's vastly superior. Yeah. Um, the, the European model, they they just um, you go what's, when you run a computer model, a weather model, you have to go through uh, an initial initialization of the atmosphere and the oceans coupling working together. And the the way that the European model does that, uh, it does a better job than the American model. And the European model handles uh, the tropical input into the atmosphere better than the American model. That's so interesting. And so it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. And, um, you know, the American model, there's, there's, uh, they're running a parallel version of the, of the main model right now. And the parallel version is, is outperforming the, the, the working, the operational model this week on Florence. So hopefully once the parallel model is ready to go, then it is more of a, a conversation as to which model is best. Gosh, I could keep going, but um, 
you're on call. So, yes, sir. <laughs> thank you very much. Yes, of course. And now our own Hugh Drummond takes over for two minutes with Tom. So uh, the topic today of Tom's two minutes is, is fear. It's kind of funny for me to talk about fear with my boss, but um, Tuesday, the uh, book by uh, Fear by Bob Woodward came out. Um, your thoughts on the book? I'm sure you haven't read it yet because it's I've just come it. out. I've ordered it and I intend to read it. Um, I'm a fan of, Woods, of uh, Woodward's. Uh, have been a fan of Bob Woodward's ever since the days of the Nixon administration. And um, when, he, when he brought that very corrupt administration to its knees, you know, through the use of, of, of using anonymous tippers, give him storylines that he took because he believed in the individuals that were talking to him. He made that a new form of journalism, and it turned out to be true. Uh, every, every last bit of it turned out to be true. Even the, the, the inner works of the Nixon administration turned against him. John Dean um, turned against him. He was the, you know, he was, a, he was the, the uh, legal counsel for the White House. And um, although he started out by betraying himself as a liar himself, he turned state's evidence and turned in the Nixon administration by calling for the tapes. All of it foisted on the American public and on government hearings and like. The, the government process to bring down the Nixon administration, which had lied. Right. It would be kind of interesting to think about would the government process had, would it have started, would it have done what it did without that first initial reporting by Woodward and Bernstein? I don't believe for a moment that it would have. And to the, the heroism, frankly, of uh, the editor of the, Wall, of the uh, Washington Post and the owner of the Washington Post to allow uh, Woodward and Bernstein to move ahead with their reporting the way they were doing it, much in the same way that this book was being written. Mm -hmm. The book Fear by Bob Woodward mm -hmm. is, is being cast today. I think, uh, you know, portrays a, an individual, in the case of the writer, Bob Woodward, who has had an honest career and is deeply uh, received uh, nationally by his peers in the press corps. Right. You know, it's interesting. I was looking today and saw that uh, the Nixon administration referred to Woodward and Bernstein as character assassins back then. Today, of course, we, we hear fake news. Yeah. And, you know, those similarities exist between that president and this president. But the fact of the matter is a man's history, you know, you, you judge a man by their, by their history and how they purport themselves over time. And Woodward, I think, has just done an outstanding job, not only on the Nixon reporting, but on all the reporting that he has done on Jimmy Carter, on on all of our presidents since Richard Nixon, uh, and the honesty that he brings to the, the front page of a newspaper. So how about your thoughts on the title? Again, I haven't read the book, so I, I can't quite figure that out. I, I don't know whether it's fear of the people who work in the Trump administration for their boss, the president of the United States, or whether it's President Trump's fear of the people that work for him because he can't trust them. We'll get into that as we read the book. So uh, one last thing, Tom. I was talking, or I listened today to the New York Times podcast, The Daily. Donald Trump said to uh, Woodward and, and Bob Costa of the Washington Post as part of this um, that the, the real power is fear. Yeah. That's kind of scary. Yeah. Um, he sounds like Tony Soprano. I mean, that, that, that language is so thuggish. 
and so underworld-like that you really begin to wonder what the president of the United States is thinking when he says something like that. I mean, it's just so unbecoming the chief executive and president of the United States. No further words from me. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Thank you for listening. And now that you've listened, be sure to subscribe. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, our website, O'NeillAndAssos.com, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, each week we're posting editions of OA on Air Extra to our website as well, so be sure to check those out. Talk to you next week.